0: I promised myself and my family that I would never be one of those pastors that comments on the weather every week, but this week is ridiculous. It snowed earlier this week and it's going to be 80 degrees today and I thought that warranted some comment. There you have it. It is a beautiful day. It was yesterday and looks like it's going to be today. So we can definitely rejoice in the many and varied gifts of God expressed sometimes in the weather. So I'm glad you're here this morning. Glad we're together looking at God's word. I'm excited to get back into the Gospel of John uh, again today. Let me pray for us real quick and ask for the Lord's help, for the Holy Spirit's guidance, and then we'll get into the, the text together. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we need you this morning. As always, um, we come to the word, your word, with um, different hindrances to understanding and obeying. And we pray this morning that you would open our eyes, open our hearts, that we would see clearly the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would understand at a very deep level who he is and the revelation of who he is in the Gospel of John, and we would respond appropriately and rightly to that revelation. Be with us now as we study the scriptures together. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. There's a book that maybe some of you have heard of called Cold Case Christianity. Um, it's written by a guy named Jay Warner Wallace, and Jay worked for years as a cold case homicide detective in Los Angeles. It's a really fascinating idea for a book. Um, In the book, Jay takes some of the key principles that guide an investigator as they try to uncover the truth about these homicide cases that have been laying cold or dormant for years, And he takes some of those same principles that guide investigators as they try to uncover the truth, and he applies those principles to the Gospels and to the life of Jesus to see if the Gospels hold up under the scrutiny that an investigator would have on evidence that that they look at and that they find. And in his book, there's an entire chapter devoted to eyewitnesses and to how to think about eyewitnesses and how to evaluate them. Eyewitnesses have always been a key part of the legal system and of cases. Um, And even the Mosaic Law talks about the importance of having multiple eyewitnesses before putting someone to death, before capital punishment is allowed Uh, to, to continue. Deuteronomy 17 and verse 6 says this, On the evidence of two witnesses, or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. And so in his chapter on eyewitnesses, Wallace gives several questions. There's actually more than I'm going to give you, but he gives several questions that in a case the judge will actually Tell the jury you need to consider these questions when you're going to be listening to eyewitnesses and evaluating their testimony. And here are some of the questions that the jury has to consider. How well could the witness see, hear, or otherwise perceive the things about which the witness testified? How well was the witness able to remember and describe what happened? Did the witness make a statement in the past that is consistent or inconsistent with his or her testimony? Did other evidence prove or disprove any fact about which the witness testified? What is the witness's character for truthfulness? And so there's these questions, and then there's actually several more that they ask and consider when they're evaluating eyewitnesses. Now, in our passage for today, in John 5, 31 to 47, Jesus is going to essentially call several witnesses to testify on his behalf. Now, why does he need these witnesses? Well, because in John 5, he has made some pretty audacious claims. I mean, he's said some things that need to be justified in some way that need an eyewitness to them for the people that he's speaking to to believe these claims. Now, it's almost been a month. I think it's been almost exactly a month since we've been in the gospel of John. And so I didn't even remember exactly where we were. And so I have no doubt that you don't remember the flow of what has been happening in John 5. And so I want to go back over this. And it's important that you understand this because it leads us up to our passage today. Now, in John 5, at the beginning of John 5, Jesus has made his way back to Jerusalem. If you'll remember, in John chapters 2 through chapter 4, there's a whole uh, cycle of experiences and of teaching and conversations that take place in Cana of Galilee. There's the water into wine, and then there's the miracles at the end of that uh, that he does the signs that he performs there. So, all that happens in chapters two through four takes place in Cana, which is in the north. At the beginning of chapter five, Jesus journeys back to Jerusalem. And when he gets to Jerusalem, he immediately makes his way to this pool at Bethsaida, or Bethesda. And this pool that he goes to has all of these invalids, all of these sick people who are gathered around this pool because they believe if they can get into the water after it's stirred up, supposedly by an angel, they will be healed. And so he goes to this pool and he goes to find this one man in particular who has been there for 38 years and he heals this man. And he doesn't just heal him, but he heals him on the Sabbath day. And he commands this man to take up his bed and to walk and the guy does just that and he's carrying his bed around and the Pharisees or the Jews get upset that he has broken the Sabbath and is carrying his bed around on the Sabbath. Look with me at chapter 5, verse 9, the second half of verse 9 here. Now that day was the Sabbath and on into verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. And it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. And so they start asking him who told him to do this, who broke the law by commanding him to take up his bed and walk, totally forgetting that a miracle had just occurred, it seems. And eventually they figure out that Jesus is the one who has done this. Look at verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Jesus responds to this action of performing this miracle on the Sabbath, and he makes this claim, which is rather shocking, in verse 17. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. And the implication is that Jesus is allowed to do this on the Sabbath because he's God. And the Pharisees, or the Jews, certainly understand what he's saying that way because of verse 18. Look there. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So they got the implication of what he was saying here. And after this, Jesus defends himself to them and goes further into the details of his relationship with God the Father. He clarifies in verses 19 through 30 exactly what his relationship with God the Father looks like. We won't go through all of this, but basically their relationship is one of unity, of love, of sharing with one another, of mutual giving and receiving, and of honoring one another. To honor the Father, to honor the Son, is to honor the other one. The implication of that, of course, being both together are worthy of worship and praise. And all of this leads to verse 30, which is where Jesus sort of circles back around and summarizes the whole thing. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The implication is we have the same desires, the same will, because, verse 18, Jesus is equal with God. And so he's made this claim, and now he has defended and clarified his relationship with the Father. And Jesus is not going to just let this claim sit out there. Now what he's going to do is he's going to to marshal all of these witnesses to testify and that have testified on his behalf. They're going to back up what he has said. Look at verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Now, let me make sure you understand what Jesus is not saying here. He's not saying that he has the inability to say anything true about himself. That's not what he's talking about here. In the context, he's speaking after he's made these bold claims, right? So he's following up on these bold claims And he also understands that he's speaking to people who are not buying what he's selling. They're not understanding. They're not agreeing with his claims. They don't believe his words. And so his point here is not that he can't say anything true about himself. His point here is they don't have to rely on his witness alone. There are others who will back up what he is saying. There are others who have already testified that Jesus is equal with God. They have testified to the relationship that he has with God, and they have testified to his role as the sent one, the Christ, the Messiah. And so here's what I want to do in light of all of that this morning as we get to our passage. You have heard Jesus' claim here to be equal with God, to have a a unity of relationship, to deserve the worship that God the Father deserves. The, the Jews understood Jesus to be saying he's equal with God, and so that claim has been put out there for us who are reading this gospel a couple of thousand years later. That claim that Jesus is equal with and is divine, that claim is at the heart of Christianity. It's at the very core of who we are as people, and what we believe. If Jesus is God, if that's true this morning, if a man walked the earth 2,000 years ago who was 100% God and 100% man, both at the same time, then he alone could atone for our sins, pay the penalty for our sins on the cross, and he alone could be the perfect mediator, that we need as fallen and sinful human beings. Salvation is possible if Jesus is God. And so this makes the claim of Jesus here and in this gospel of ultimate significance. You have to respond to this claim. And this is the heart of Christianity. It's what it's all about. Listen, our faith is not just a moral code. It's not just a set of rules. It's not even primarily a set of rules. It's not, certainly not, a political posture. Christianity is most fundamentally a claim that God became man and died to bring mankind to God. God came down to us and died and rose from the dead in order to bring us to God. He is the mediator. And his claim here is the heart of Christianity and it is of ultimate significance. Here's what C.S. Lewis had to say. Christianity is a statement with Jesus' divinity at the heart of it, which, if false, is of no importance. And if true, is of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. We cannot be casual about this claim this morning or any morning. And so here's what I want to do, and here's what I want you to do with Jesus' claim this morning. I want you to listen as we look at two responses to Jesus' claim to be equal with God. Two responses, and consider these responses. First, the first one, verses 31 to 40. Witnesses to Jesus are to be believed for eternal life. Witnesses to Jesus, those that he's going to call on his behalf right here, are to be trusted. They are to be believed, and the end result of that faith is eternal life. It's a relationship with God. It's man being brought to God. Now Jesus has already pointed out in verse 31, if you look back there, that he is not a lone ranger here. He's not operating on his own. He's not some lunatic that has a delusional sense of greatness and so now he is claiming to be equal with God. He's not on his own here. In fact, he has a rather significant witness who agrees with his account of his relationship with the Father. Look at verse 32. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Who is this witness here? Well, it's very easy to think this is John the Baptist because he's mentioned in the next verse, but that's not who he's talking about here. Jesus has just made these claims about God the Father and his unity of relationship with the Father, his close relationship with him. Later in the gospel, John is going to address this again because here he's talking about his relationship with the Father. The Father testifies to the equality that Jesus has with him. John 12, 49 to 50. Let me read this to you. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. And so the Father also witnesses to Jesus's equality with him. I mean, Jesus is not going to deny the reality of the Father's relationship with him and of his role as Messiah. God affirms this. Now, he's going to get back to the Father and his witness in a minute here, but if you're the Jews sitting here listening to Jesus, this is still a little vague to you, right? You, you don't have direct communication verbally from the Father Out of the clouds, really, at this point. And so it's still a little vague to you. And so Jesus is now going to call some very concrete witnesses that they do know and that they have heard. Look at verses 33 to 35 for the first one of these. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. And so Jesus is referring back here to the beginning of his ministry when John the Baptist was visited by the Jewish leadership. Do you remember this? In John chapter one, they came to him and they asked about his ministry. And what did John do? He spoke quite clearly about what his role was and about who Jesus would be. If you want to, you can flip back to John chapter 1, and I'll begin reading in verse 29, as this scene is described. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him. This is John the Baptist, and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Probably could not be much clearer here. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This was John's role in salvation history. John chapter 1, verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So this was his role. But even though this was John's role, Jesus says he does not ultimately, his ministry doesn't depend on human words and John for the veracity of his claims. Look at 34. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man. But here's why he's referring to John. But I say these things so that you may be saved. John is provided as a witness for the Jews and ultimately for us as well so that they could believe and so that we could believe and have eternal life. John was an instrument of revelation and that is what Jesus is getting at in verse 35. Look there. He, speaking of John, was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Jesus here is probably alluding to an Old Testament passage that talks about a light and a lamp coming before the future Davidic king. And he's saying, light, is often associated with revelation, with making things clear in Scripture. And so he's saying, John was this light, this lamp that was coming before the light to reveal the light. This passage is in Psalm 132. I find this fascinating. For the Lord has chosen Zion. This is looking ahead to the future. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David, right? A future descendant of David. And look what he says here. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. And so I think what Jesus is saying here is that John is this lamp. He's the one that is to come before the true Davidic king. But regardless, many beyond Jesus, many of the Jews viewed John as a prophet. You see this later in the Gospels, and that's why Jesus says here in verse 35, you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. John was viewed by many as a prophet, and because of that, They had to do something with his word, with his testimony. And what is Jesus' response? What does he say we should do with John's testimony? Believe it. Believe it for eternal life. And so John is a significant witness to Jesus, but he's not the most significant. Look at verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. John's gospel, the whole gospel, is built around signs that testify to Jesus' deity and his mission as Messiah. I mean, in chapter 5, we already talked about it this morning, he's just healed a man who had been lame for 38 years. Years. You have to do something with that. When a guy stands up and walks after 38 years of inability to do that, something, you have to have some response to that. Something has gone on here. And Jesus is saying that these works, just like this, that he has done and that he will continue to do in the Gospel of John, the works witness and testify. To who he is. He talks about this later in John 10. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? It's like getting asked the same question over and over again. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Later in the same chapter, If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Now at this point in the Gospel, the Jews had seen signs where people were healed and they had these signs to believe in and that should have been enough. But now... After the Gospels, 2,000 years later, you and I have the greatest sign that Jesus performed his own rising from the dead, that testifies to his relationship with the Father and to the fact that he was not just a man. He was not just a good teacher. Good teachers don't get up and walk out of the grave. He was God, he was the saving God. He was the mediator between God and man. And so the resurrection, historically verified and accurate, actually took place, testifies to Jesus' position as equal with God and to his role as the divine Messiah. And so we have all of these works, both in the Gospels and then the resurrection at the end of the Gospels, that testify to who he is. But even beyond the works, there's another witness, beyond John, beyond the works that testifies and serves to witness to Jesus' relationship with the Father. Look at verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself bore witness, borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen, verse 38, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. So let me explain what's going on here. The father bears witness to Jesus. That's a, a broad principle here. We'll get into the specifics of how that happens in a second. The father bears witness, but the Jews had not seen him like they had at Mount Sinai. We just went through the book of Exodus this past year. That whole event where they had seen God on the mountain, essentially, on the top of Mount Sinai, they received his revelation. They didn't have that here. And so Jesus has come to reveal the Father. John 1 talks about this. He's come to reveal the Father. So even if they're struggling because they can't see God, they have the concrete revelation of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. But even if they can't believe that, there is a major way that God has spoken to them about who Jesus is. Look at verses 39 and 40. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And so the Father has spoken through the Old Testament Scriptures and has spoken about Jesus through the Old Testament Scriptures. Hebrews chapter 1 talks about this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Now, of course, you and I have God's greatest revelation of Himself through His Son. The next verse in Hebrews 1, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So we have God's testimony about the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. However, that doesn't mean that the Old Testament was unclear regarding the coming future Davidic King and Savior. And that's Jesus' point here. It is they, the Old Testament scriptures, that bear witness about me. How does this happen? Well, we've already seen this over and over again in the Gospel of John, haven't we? Almost every story in John, almost, if not every passage, has referred back to the Old Testament. John 1.14 says that Jesus tabernacled among us that word dwell literally is the word tabernacled he was like the tabernacle in the old testament but he is the full and final and complete revelation of God coming to dwell among men he's like the tabernacle but better and so ultimately it pointed to him in John one twenty nine, Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world a clear allusion to the Old Testament sacrificial system, the Passover lamb. In John one forty nine, Nathanael calls Jesus the Messiah, the promised king of Israel. In John one fifty one, Jesus points out to his disciples that they will see an even greater revelation of the coming together of heaven and earth than Jacob saw. Jacob saw one thing, you're going to see something even greater. Jacob's was a shadow of what's going to be revealed to you. All of these Old Testament stories and figures and prophecies find their goal and their fulfillment in Jesus. And we've only talked about the first chapter of John so far. We haven't even gotten into the water into wine and Jesus's conversation with Nicodemus. We haven't even gotten into John chapter 3 and chapter 4 and what's been revealed there from the Old Testament. All of it looks forward to, anticipates, and aims at and predicts the coming of Jesus as Messiah, the Davidic King of Israel. So the bottom line here is, in this passage, verses 31 to 40, there are multiple witnesses that testify to who Jesus is, to his identity. You have John the Baptist. You have the works that Jesus performs while he's on earth. You have his greatest work, which is coming, his resurrection from the dead. You have the testimony of God the Father through the Old Testament scriptures, the way that all of the Old Testament points forward to Jesus and confirms who he is. What's amazing here is that Jesus says that the The Jews, in verse 39, had searched the Scriptures. They had studied them. This is not a casual word. It's a very intense word. They spent a lot of time studying the Old Testament. They looked. They inquired. They poured over the Old Testament Scriptures. But they couldn't find Jesus. Jesus. This is interesting for you and I, I think, because what it indicates to us is that in some cases, intense study of Scripture does not guarantee a right view of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not, the two do not necessarily go together. Why? Look at the end of verse 40. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. They refused to come to Jesus even though they had all of these witnesses testifying to them. They had the promise of eternal life right in front of them. They needed to believe, and they didn't. Why? That's what Jesus is going to get into in verses 41 to 47. This is our second response. So we've seen witnesses to Jesus, and those witnesses are to be believed. And now we're going to see warnings against unbelief. And these warnings are to be carefully considered. In this next part of this passage, Jesus does a remarkably clear job of identifying why they would not believe him. All of these witnesses are there, and they're quite clear. Even the Old Testament scriptures, which you study, are clear about who Jesus is, and yet you're not believing. You're not coming to me. Why? My encouragement as we go through this this morning to you, to me as well, would be not to think of these warning words as something that we sort of relegate to the dustbin of history and think was only true of these Jews at this particular time. These same motivations and desires often lurk in our hearts and keep us from true faith. So notice what Jesus does here. He opens with a, a very clear contrast between his motivation and their motivation. Verse 41, I do not receive glory from people. That is not what Jesus is going after. This is a very clear description of the issue, and the issue is a disposition of the heart. It's a desire of the heart. Jesus is not pursuing praise from people. He's not seeking the honor or adoration of human beings. He's not needing their affirmation and their approval. He's not trying to draw a crowd. That's not his goal. His whole goal is to glorify the Father and to honor him. John 8, 29. He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. That's his motivation, and that's his goal. But what's driving the Jews to not believe? What keeps them from faith, from humble trust in the witnesses that testify to who Jesus is? Three things that are are all tied together, But I think we can separate them and make them distinct in order to help us consider how these things might be true in our own lives. First, look at verse 42. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Here's the first thing that is keeping them, the motivation of their heart that's keeping them from faith. They do not love God. Instead, what's driving their hearts? John three and verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness, rather than the light, because their works were evil. Listen, the human heart has no choice but to love something. You cannot turn off your love this morning. You can't do it. You can't stop loving something. God has designed us this way. It's one of the beautiful things about being a human being. We are passionate and interested, and we are made in order to love something. We cannot turn the engine of love off. But the question is, what is fueling your engine? What are you loving this morning? Something is. And these Jews fundamentally did not have a love for God. They were not interested in him. Instead, according to John 3, they loved their evil. They loved darkness rather than light. They didn't have a love for God, and that kept them from hearing God's Son and believing in him. That love in their heart kept them from honestly, intellectually assessing the witnesses to who Jesus is, And believing in him. You could put all the evidence in the world in front of them. And the passion of their heart to not love God and pursue darkness. Would keep them from believing in him. Love and faith go hand in hand. If you believe what God says you will grow in your love for him. And if you love him you will believe what he says. They grow together. And a misplaced love will Skew and divert your faith from where it needs to be. Second, the second thing, driving them away from belief, verses 43 and 44. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Here we find out what their love is aimed at. Has to be aimed at something. What is it? The praise of men. They're passionate about wanting the affirmation and the approval of other people. They want to be viewed in a favorable light by those around them. They want to be seen as wise, as good, as religious, as cool, as smart, whatever it might be. They want others to view them in a particular way. They're not interested in God's approval. Instead, they want other people's approval. And it drives them to the point where they will even accept a rival Messiah. Look at 4043 again. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. They're so self-centered and so concerned for their own glory that they will accept a rival Messiah if it will promote their own glory. They'll believe all kinds of crazy things in order to prop up their own need for affirmation. One author calls those who do this approval junkies. This is a temptation for many of us. Oftentimes we are addicts for the approval of others, the affirmation of others. And here's the danger. Making this the goal of your life, seeking the praise and the approval of others, keeps us from true faith in God and love for Him. The third thing keeping them from believing in Jesus is in 45 to 47. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Their perverted hearts led them to misread their Bibles. They could look at the text. They could study the text. They could see what's there. They understood the words in front of them, and yet they didn't really understand them. They did not read their Bibles in the right way. What they ended up doing was using the Scriptures for their own ends. They love Moses. They're all about him. Moses tattoos. They read him. They studied him. But their darkened and twisted hearts caused them to approach the text with arrogance and not humility, and they ended up ultimately rejecting the true intent of what Moses wrote about. That's what happened. And in the end, Moses himself and the books that he wrote will be their accusers. In court, he will be the one who presents the evidence against them. I talked about Jesus. You didn't believe. He will testify against them. So what are the warnings here for us? Be careful about the love of your heart. Be careful about what your heart is passionate about. Do you long for the praise of people over the approval of God? And is the passion of your heart causing you to come to the Bible in a self-centered manner which makes you consistently miss the point of the text? What's the other option? How How do you not give in to these three areas that keep you from believing in Christ and following Him? The witnesses are there. The witnesses are clear to the person and work of Christ, and they are many. It's not just one. It's many witnesses. And so you and I have a sure foundation on which to base our faith this morning. It is rock solid. It is there. There is no doubt about it. The resurrection is true. And so read the scriptures, trust what the witnesses say, And trust the word of God for eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word this morning. Help this to sink in deep into our hearts. Help us to believe what you have to say in your word consistently, to come to the scriptures in a posture of humility, not of arrogance. And build faith in us through our interaction with your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.